Hello everyone, this is Giulio Prisco. This episode of the Turing Church podcast is a conversation with Emily Adlam, the author of a book titled uh, Foundations of Quantum Mechanics and Many Insightful Papers. A conventional local definition of determinism is that the future is determined by the present with uh, causal influences limited by the speed of light, which take time to propagate in space. But Emily argues that the universe doesn't compute itself locally in space and time, uh, place by place and instant by instant, but all at once, globally and self-consistently. I find Emily's approach very interesting and uh, a game changer for uh, philosophy of physics. Hi, Emily. Good to have you here. Great to be here. Thank you. Could you introduce yourself in more detail? Uh, yes. Um, uh, I am, uh, as you can see, I am a philosopher of physics. I studied uh, physics and philosophy for my undergrad uh, and then did a PhD in relativistic quantum information. So that was a, a, a pure physics PhD, but now I work in more on the philosophy side, doing the philosophy of physics. I'm um, here at the, the Rotman Institute University of Western Ontario. So do you call yourself a physicist or a philosopher of physics? Yes, interesting. Um, well, there's a, there's a fine line between them in many cases. Um, I did, as I say, I did my PhD in physics, uh, but I think these days I'm a bit more of a philosopher of physics uh, because you know, rather, than, rather than focusing in great detail on one topic, as many physicists do, I'm interested in sort of getting the bigger picture and seeing connections between things and that sort of and I think it's more in the realm of philosophy. Great. Uh, so could you summarize uh, your uh, Sudoku metaphor for global determinism? Yes. Um, so uh, the idea here is that you know, we often think about the laws of nature as if they sort of, they're a bit like a computer. They start at the beginning of time and they evolve towards the other side. They sort of produce the world in some ordered process. Um, but the laws could take some other kind of form. They could be more like the rules of a game of Sudoku. Um, so the rules of a game of Sudoku don't ask you to start at the left and move towards the right of the grid. They just prescribe the whole solution in one go. Um, and there's no sort of privileged order there. Uh, you might fill in the grid in some order, but that order is not, is not, it's not prescribed by the rules. The rules just tell you that the solution as a whole is correct or incorrect. So the thought is that the laws of nature could be like that. They could just apply to the whole universe all at once, and they could produce a solution as a whole object rather than starting at one side and moving towards somewhere else. Yeah, I find this a very intuitive metaphor. As a matter of fact, as soon as I read your first paper, I decided to learn Sudoku. I didn't play before, uh, you know, I don't like uh, too much playing games, but I decided to learn to, you know, get an intuitive feeling for these ideas. Uh, now I can solve uh, Sudoku problems uh, that are considered uh, the hardest, those that uh, Sudoku.com calls evil oh, in wow. a in about half an hour. Uh, is that good? Or should I do that in maybe five minutes or even less? Ah, I don't know. I don't actually play Sudoku all that much myself. Um, that sounds good to me, though. Well, I get, um, you know, the feeling that, that uh, since there is a, a unique solution and you can arrive at that solution 
by entirely by logic without guessing uh i mean one much smarter than me and i guess there are uh, computer uh, programs able to do that right now could figure out the solution at a glance yes yes um yeah i don't know if any people can do that but certainly a computer probably could yeah, at least for nine by nine sudoku now when it comes to huge sudoku grids with uh, a lot of numbers uh, um that would grow exponentially, I guess. Yes. It's uh, difficult. Eh? Right. So at some point, not even the best supercomputer could make it. Yes, it would. Um, yes, that the computational power would certainly be quite demanding for a large grid. Right. However, I think it's a very illuminating metaphor. In uh, your book and uh, other papers, you summarize your ideas, saying that uh, the course of history is determined all at once by external atemporal laws of nature. Uh, now, this uh, suggests to me a concept that uh, um, is very old and frequently appears in Christian theology, that uh, the universe is a uh, deterministic from something like an out-of-time perspective, but uh, it appears deterministic, non-deterministic, seen from our point of view within time. Uh, uh, In the Middle Ages, uh, philosophers have uh, discussed that a lot. Now, my intuition tells me that uh, this could be somehow related to Gödel's theorems in the sense that... uh, uh, you know, a consistent mathematical system appears incomplete from within the system. Now, would you agree on that? And perhaps you have done uh, some more thoughts. Yes, yeah, I have been thinking about this. Um, definitely, I think there's a relation here. Uh, the, the sort of the key point is that um, the properties of a system that you see from inside it do not don't always match the, the properties that you see from the outside. Uh, and more generally, there's a sort of problem of underdetermination because uh, in most cases, what you see from inside will, inside the system will not suffice to fully determine what the system looks like from the outside. Um, and sort of no amount of, of gathering information that we can do from inside the system can you know, establish the, the fully consistent system as it would appear from outside. Um, so I think this this does sort of draw attention to the need, need to understand uh, the relation between what you can establish from within some system and what the system will look outside uh, and to, to, to be aware of that as we, as we do physics that you know, what we see is not, is not the complete picture uh, and that we will, never, we will never have that complete system and we, we can only sort of make inferences to it based on what we can understand. Now, do you think uh, the last uh, statement that you made that we can never, underlining uh, never, have complete information about the system that we are uh, part of from within the system. You think, is that any way to prove this uh, statement in logic or physics or whatever? Um, There's various theorems in physics, uh, in general relativity, for example, showing that based on the the amount of information that we can get at, at our location in space time, 
given relativistic constraints on where information can go, uh, can never establish things like the global structure of space-time. So we can, we, in, when we do the uh, general relativity, we tend to make assumptions about uh, the way the parts of space-time we see are related to the parts we don't see. We assume there's some kind of homogeneity and there's, uh, that the view on the universe that we have is not, is not special and it would look similar from other places. Uh, but those are only assumptions which, which can't be, ever be proved because we can't get outside our own light cone and see what's going on in parts of the, the global structure of the universe that we don't have access to. So that uh, these would be strong limitations in uh, principle, not just things that can be overcome with better technology. Yes, exactly. So assuming that relativity is right in what it tells us about, you know, that information can't travel outside its future light cone, that means that it's in principle impossible for us to get information about parts of the universe outside of, outside of the light cone that we have access to. But doesn't your own conception of determinism uh, in a global sense uh, kind of uh, undermine some of the limits imposed by special relative? Uh, to, to, to some extent, uh, certainly, you know, we know that relativity is not the, the, the final answer. Uh, and it's possible that when we when we move to a different theory, we will discover that some of the limitations we thought existed in relativity uh, no longer exist in in whatever the successor theory is. Um, but I, I, the sort of the limits that relativity puts on the transfer of information, in particular, um, are quite strong and do there are good reasons for them beyond beyond the structure of relativity itself. So I personally would expect that many of those limitations to to continue in a future theory. Right. Um, let's uh, move uh, to quantum physics now with this uh, apparently random quantum outcomes like uh, post decoherences uh, choices between uh, brackets. Are these uh, determined by uh, global factors distributed all over space and time? including faraway places and future times? Yes, that, that they, they could be is the answer. Um, or that's, that's kind of the one suggestion that I've made with this global determinism hypothesis. And is of course, only a hypothesis. It's not established physics. So in established physics, we assume that they're genuinely random and don't, don't, are not determined anything. Um, but the, the thought in this global determinism hypothesis is that that randomness appears uh, because we're trying to write down a sort of evolution theory going from one side to the other rather than writing this holistic deterministic theory. Um, and we do know, for example, that you can, you can have an altered formalism for quantum mechanics where you add a future boundary condition as well as an initial condition. And in that formalism, many, in many cases, quantum measurement outcomes are deterministic. The initial condition and the future condition are, enough to, are together enough to determine them. Uh, so we do know that allowing independence on not just the past, but also the future does at least move us in the direction of having the outcome becoming more deterministic. Um, and, and the thought is that if, if we develop that idea further and we could, we could sort of understand that, that global picture a bit better, perhaps they would all be deterministic. And going back to my previous point, this, uh, in a sense, uh, seems to contradict what um, you just said 
about the limits imposed by special relativity. But I guess your answer was that, you know, even if uh, the, the information that we would need is out there in some way, it's not information that we can acquire. And this is a limitation in principle because, uh, you know, information cannot move from one place to another in a causal way faster than the speed of light. Yes. So if, if, if quantum measurement outcomes do depend in certain ways on things in the future or things that are space-like separated from them, uh, those dependencies would have to be, would have to be li limited or hidden in certain ways uh, because otherwise it would get strange phenomena like you know closed causal loops and causal paradoxes and, and that kind of thing. So it, it must be the case that it's that we can't we can't just look at the quantum measurement outcome and immediately know something else about the future or about this, this something space like separated. That there has to be some uh, that dependence has to be masked in a similar way to we see in you know we see in uh, non-local quantum correlations. We know there's a dependence between those two measurements, but we can't. We can't signal like that. And so my thought is that the dependence here would be of a similar kind. It would be not usable for signaling. Like uh, what happens behind the scenes in a theater that uh, spectators cannot uh, see from uh, where they're uh, seated. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Now, um, leaving quantum physics uh, aside and pretending that we live in an entirely classical world for a moment. Uh, there are apparently random outcomes also in uh, non-quantum but uh, chaotic dynamical systems. Uh, in, uh, would uh, what you just say also apply in this case or there are fundamental differences between uh, the two realms? Yes, I mean, it depends how you understand uh, classical chaotic systems. Uh, I think the, the sort of the, the mainstream, at least I, understanding of them, is that all of those outcomes are really deterministic, even in, in sort of normal classical theory at, at, at the most fundamental level. And it's simply our inability to, to measure the initial conditions precisely enough, which makes them look chaotic. Um, so... If, if that is correct, um, if that's the right way of thinking about them, then then they are deterministic, but not in a, a global way, just in the ordinary uh, classical way. There is uh, these um, interesting arguments put forward by Swiss physicist Nicolas Gisin uh, to argue that uh, classical physics itself is very deeply, strongly, and uh, irreducibly non-deterministic and the answer is that the real numbers don't exist yeah. i think is that you know a real number is something that you're supposed uh, to specify with infinite precision so that it's not a physical concept as a matter of fact many others like uh, max born said exactly the same things now i do find these arguments uh, very persuasive and, uh, you know, I'm kind of persuaded that uh, similar arguments show that uh, the um, difference between classical physics and quantum physics, as far as determinism is concerned, are not uh, that uh, strong in principle as they're often thought. And what are your uh, thoughts about that? 
Yes, I also uh, very much like Shizan's approach. Um, if I think maybe one, the best way of thinking about it is that it's showing us that in a sense, classical physics was really never, never self, self-consistent. Um, you know, it, the description of the world that it, it presented to us was in some sense, you know, deeply wrong or, mis- or mistaken. Uh, and particularly, particularly when you try to push it down to very small scales. Um, so in a sense, it's, it's given that it's not very surprising that we found that, in fact, when we did try to go down to very small scales, turns out classical physics breaks down and is wrong in its description of the world because that description, you know, the, the infinitely precise deterministic picture of the world that it, it gave to us was, was really never a viable one. Right. And, um, you know, trying now to put uh, these things uh, together, or at least in the same framework with quantum physics, there are these uh, suggestions that, um, you know, uh, the fact that we live in a quantum world is something uh, uh, that is only apparent and uh, underlying our quantum worlds. There is uh, something more classical in the sense that it could be described by standard differential uh, equations, but the presence of strongly fractal chaos, uh, uh, you know, introduces some uh, lack of determinism, which uh, causes the world uh, to appear quantum, something like that. Do you relate to these uh, ideas? I'm definitely interested in the, the possibility of there being something else underlying quantum mechanics, um, you know, some some further completion of the theory or uh, addition to it. Um, I, I personally don't think that whatever is underneath quantum mechanics is likely to be classical um, because there are there are just too many features of quantum mechanics that are very clearly non-classical. Uh, so, so, so my view is that whatever underlies quantum mechanics will actually probably be less classical than quantum mechanics rather than more classical than quantum mechanics. Right. Yeah, rather than less weird. Um, For example, are you familiar with the ideas of Tim Palmer? Yes. And what do you think of that? Yes, I really like uh, I really like Tim's approach. Um, uh, and in fact, I you know I, I, Tim describes his approach as being super deterministic. Uh, whereas I think I think the sort of fractal idea, with perhaps with some small changes, or perhaps even just as as is, could also be thought of as as just being globally deterministic rather than super deterministic. Um, you know, he he wants to describe it as a as, as a local superdeterministic approach, but I think it could equally well be thought of as a non-local globally deterministic approach, um, where the sort of the global structure of the fractal is what is responsible for, um, in, in a sort of global non-local way for the, for the configuration of events we actually experience. Um, so I, yeah, I'm, I'm interested, interested in the sort of connections between that view and my own view. Yeah, that was kind of my reaction as well after reading his papers and his uh, recently published book. The thing is that he says, and he insists many times, that his theory is uh, local, in some sense of the word local. Yeah. 
But um, you know, the thing is that going back to a more intuitive sense of the world, you know, a theory where uh, things that happen here and now depends on things that happen in an extremely remote uh, future with interaction between the world now and some future worlds. I mean, that's a kind of a very strongly non-local. But I understand that he's using locality in a very technical way, and perhaps in his sense, he's right. But, you know, as somebody who is walking in the street, it does look very much non-local and non-deterministic to me. Yes, and I think I think perhaps emphasizing locality too much, too much for me is perhaps taking away from some of the other strengths of the, of the view, because, you know, the, Restoring locality to quantum physics is something that a lot of people want to do, but it's not the be all and end all. And I think I think Tim Palmer's views uh, are a really interesting way of thinking about what could be responsible for quantum mechanics, you know, regardless of whether one considers them to be local or not. So I, I perhaps like to focus less on locality and think more about the broader consequences of this kind of view. Mm-hmm. In a, now let's. Uh move uh, to general relativity but well these things are so much uh, interrelated that we could not perhaps even divide them by category so in this uh, nice paper called spooky action at the temporal distance and also in your book you note that uh, general relativity is usually interpreted as a temporary local theory but you also suggest that it should be interpreted as an atemporal temporal non-local theory because a solution to the Einstein field equations is as a matter of fact uh, a full entire history of a space-time. Now do you think the breakdown of local determinism in space-times with uh, things like naked singularities and closed time-like curves suggest that your interpretation is correct? Uh, yes, so uh, this is this is interesting because the the, the uh, general relativity is usually written in a sort of form which which looks very temporarily non-local. It's the where the solution is just an entire history rather than sort of stated at a time. Um, but it, it it can also be written in a time evolution form um, where where you take an initial state, you put certain constraints on it, and then evolve it forward. Um, but the space of solutions that you can produce by using the time evolution equations is smaller than the space of solutions to the original equations. Uh, the time evolution form will only produce space times which are globally hyperbolic. Um, whereas there are various space times um, which are solutions to the original equations which are not globally hyperbolic, and those include the ones with naked singularities and the ones with closed time-like curves. Um, so on the one hand, uh, someone who's, who's just very insistent that the world must be, might, must be temporally local might perhaps argue that, you know, I believe the real equations of general relativity are the evolution ones, and therefore our space-time must be globally hyperbolic, and therefore there won't be any naked singularities or closed time-like curves. Um, but on the other hand, you know, one might worry that that, that 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 seems poorly justified. There's this perfectly mathematically well-defined space of solutions to the Einstein equations. We don't really have any reason other than prejudice in favor of temporal locality to rule out the non-globally hyperbolic ones. So maybe we should take those seriously and we should accept them as possible solutions to the Einstein equations. Uh, in which case, yes, those phenomena do look like, if they exist, would certainly be evidence um, that this all at once uh, 
temporarily non-local approach is the right one. Fascinating. As far as I understand, the concept uh, a globally hyperbolic space-time is one that can be kind of divided in uh, space-like slices in such a way as to be able to assign initial conditions onto one uh, time slice and uh, propagate uh, these uh, conditions um, in time. But um, you say this... uh, is uh, an uh, assumption, it seems to me, due to aesthetic and uh, philosophical preferences. It's not uh, in Einstein's field equations themselves. Indeed, yes. Uh, Certainly Einstein's field equations perfectly happily admit solutions which don't have that globally hyperbolic property. So it's assuming that the world must be globally hyperbolic it involves making a further assumption that some class of solutions, even though they're mathematically well-defined, must somehow be physically impossible. Uh, Now, going back to the um, hypothetical possibility to derive the quantum mechanics from something else without saying what that something else could be. I'm just thinking aloud now uh, of uh, the fact that uh, many times... uh, in recent history, in the last few decades, the concept that uh, perhaps uh, elementary particles are uh, space-time singularities has been proposed and even studied. Uh, some uh, derivation of the fact that I believe uh, some kind of singularity would uh, propagate in a space-time according to the uh, usual geodesics on space-time. Now, it seems to me that uh, if uh, something in this approach is correct and importing in the theory the results about uh, the non-determinism which will will be induced in uh, non-globally hyperbolic space-times, it seems to me, well, uh, very qualitatively, and I'm just thinking aloud, it seems to me that some progress could be made toward some kind of uh, derivation of quantum mechanics from uh, perhaps a modified version of general relativity. Yes. Um, yes, it depends a lot on the details, but... Um, of course. Interesting, interesting possibility because, you know, obviously one of the... The reasons we'd like to have a, a different interpretation of quantum mechanics is because quantum mechanics in its current form is quite hard to unify with general relativity. Um, so if, if we could understand quantum particles as being derived in some sense from general relativity, that would, that would hopefully be a step on the road to bringing those theories together in a way that so far has been quite difficult to achieve. Now, let's uh, briefly move to things that are considered uh, more philosophical, which is uh, free will. In one of your papers, you say that, and I'm quoting here, we could have free will in the context of some sorts of holistic determinism. Our actions are determined by other events, but also those events are partly determined by our actions. So in other words, 
a holistic universe without me would be a different universe. And therefore, I am a partly free agent in this holistic universe. Now, this is a subtle concept of free will, uh, perhaps different from the intuitive one, but uh, strong in its own sense. And uh, I can almost agree. Do you, or perhaps I do agree, but do you find this uh, concept of free will uh, uh, emotionally acceptable? And how would you persuade one who doesn't? Yes. So I think, you know, there are various the, the concerns that people have about free will in, in physics differ. But one of the, the major things people worry about is the idea that my actions can't be free in a sort of standardly deterministic theory because everything I ever do is determined, you know, by the initial state of the universe long before I ever existed. And so there's, I, it's this determination by things in the past, which means that my actions just, there's no sense in which they are free. Um, <clears throat> so I think once you move to a more global picture, uh, it's no longer the truth to say that all my actions are just determined by the past because in the, that global picture, there isn't a privileged moment. It isn't the case that the initial state determines the rest and not vice versa. Right. All, all moments are kind of equal in that picture. So yes, yes, there, there is a determination relation there, but it's just as true to say my actions determine the past as it is to say the past determines my actions. So I think there is certainly some kind of kind of freedom there. It's a sort of participatory freedom rather than the strong kind of freedom that uh, uh, dualists might have wanted, but it is looks more like freedom to, to me than uh, what, what we have in a sort of standard deterministic picture. Um, and I, I think sort of in the, the, the standard deterministic picture, we really, we really don't, definitely don't have, have free will. So even if this, this kind of freedom is a bit, bit subtle and a bit uh, weaker than what one, the dualists might perhaps want, I think it's better than the alternative, which is no free will at all. Uh, right. And in fact, I think the core idea here is that uh, instead of saying that the initial conditions at the beginning of the universe uh, determine my actions here and now, I could as well say it the other way around, that uh, my actions here and now are determining the initial conditions at the beginning of the universe. And uh, because of time symmetry, there is no way to prefer, there is no rational way to say that one statement is more correct than the other. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, and so it's not the case that the past just decided all my actions. I, my, my choice is just as valid as the other description. Yeah, this, uh, you know, I'm, uh, uh, I think about this a lot and I'll continue to think about it, but yet it's uh, almost sounds like uh, a good uh, and very strong concept of uh, free will. Yes. In another paper, um, which also won a prize, I think, you say that uh, the laws of nature, um, I start quoting, apply simple macroscopic constraints to the universe as a whole and work out what needs to happen on a more fine-grained level in order to satisfy these constraints. And here, um, I believe that you have uh, things like uh, the law of thermodynamics in mind, something like that. But, uh, you know, thinking 
about all the idea that are being developed now about uh, the fact that, that the universe is uh, somehow tuned to prefer the emergency of complexity, life and consciousness, and perhaps even some kind of quality in Robert Pierce's sense. Um, in your scheme, do you think that uh, these uh, very high level constraints, much higher level than simple thermodynamics, could uh, play a role in, uh, how to say, how the universe makes decisions? Uh, it's, it's, it's possible. Um, sort of more or less anything you can imagine could be written in the form of a constraint, right? So mathematically it can be done. So the question is, is then if we're going to move to this kind of constraint-based picture, we're going to need you know, good criteria that we can use to judge whether, you know, is this a constraint? Should we think of this as being part of the objective structure of reality or not? Um, and um, presumably those, those criteria will, will do something like look at the sort of relative simplicity and power of different possible sets of constraints, you know, how 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 few constraints do I need to, to, to sort of explain everything? Um, it, what is the balance between making the, the constraints simpler versus losing predictive power? So it, um, exactly how to establish which set of constraints is the right set of constraints is it's certainly non-trivial. Um, but I think the sort of the standard methods that scientists have used, you know, since forever to, to judge between different hypotheses will, will are applicable here too. It will be about saying, is this what's the sort of simplest set of constraints, what's the most powerful set of constraints, how, we can, how can we combine them? Just trying to think of what kind of very weird mathematics you might have to use to include uh, uh, high-level concepts within the constraints of the universe. Nothing that I can imagine, of course. Yes, I mean, I, I suspect that... To, to write laws in a constraint-based form and derive consequences from them in a proper formal mathematical way would, would potentially require the development of new, new types of maths or you know, perhaps just the use of some, some type of maths that exists in pure mathematics but hasn't so far been used in physics. Do you have any hunch of uh, what that mathematics could be? Um, it's, yeah, no, it's, it's unclear. Um, it, it's the a lot of the methods of, of physics do use some all at once type uh, type form formulations. So we do have, for example, Lagrangian formulations in which we optimize some quantity of the, the entire history rather than starting at one side and going towards the other end. So I would suspect it would be you know, the Lagrangian Lagrangian type methods are a good start, and I would suspect it would generalize something beyond that would be interesting. Right now, in the same uh, paper that I was quoting from, you continue and say, presumably, at least some features will be left underdetermined by the global constraints. Now, I read this to an opening to residual non-determinism or to multiple words. Now, going back to the Sudoku metaphor, uh, if a Sudoku problem has been uh, properly set up, it has a unique solution. But, uh, you know, a problem that has not been so 
probably set up can be uh, can be underdetermined with multiple solutions or overdetermined with no solution. Uh, so thinking on how the universe plays uh, cosmic Sudoku. Uh, again, imagine that uh, in some cases there could be no unique solution boundary between over and under determination. So the universe should uh, make this choice. And of course, it would uh, choose to split and uh, become uh, uh, many words instead of disappearing and becoming uh, uh, no word, which kind of uh, looks like, uh, conceptually at least, the idea of a multiverse. And can you comment on that? Yes, yeah, I think that the possibility of there being no unique solution boundary is a really interesting one. Um, uh, so I, I think it's, it's certainly, it's very likely that there is no unique solution. Um, the question of, of what, what happens when, if there's no unique solution is, is a bit subtle. Um, so yet one possibility is that you know, all of the solutions are just realized as, as distinct universes. Uh, the other possibility is that the universe just chooses one solution. Um, uh, I, I guess, I have some concerns about the, the, the multiple universe possibility because I've, I've worked on multiverses in other contexts and they do tend to lead to some quite serious sort of epistemic problems, particularly if you can't have a sense, if you can't define a sensible uh, probability distribution over them because uh, then, then there's the concern that you, you can't sensibly infer back to, from, to, from your observations to, uh, uh, to, to any features of the theory which are responsible for your observations because just all the observations get realized. Um, so I, I, I'm personally inclined to say that in, in the case where there's multiple solutions, just one of them is realized at, at random or arbitrarily. Um, but also there's kind of, there's, there's really no way we can know, right? Because from our point of view, we'll, we'll, we'll always look as if just one was, was realized arbitrarily or at random. And I guess there's no, there's no direct way to know whether the others were realized or not from within a single universe. In this context, in fact, I would find it surprising if one choice were made at random, because when we are at this point, the universe has already used all these uh, constraint-based uh, methods that we have been discussing. So at that point, to make a choice among multiple uh, evolution possibilities, the universe has already done all that it could do. And uh, you know, a random choice would uh, beg the question of uh, where it comes from. I, well, it's very similar, I think, to, you know, in this, the standard deterministic picture, there's a, you know, there's many different possible courses of history which are compatible with the laws, and the universe just, you know, chooses one by selecting an initial condition, and that initial condition is what determines which, um, which course of history actually occurs, and so, uh, in, in the globally deterministic picture, this, you know, choosing one out of all the, the, the universes which are consistent with the laws is, is basically the same thing. It's, it's equivalent to choosing an initial condition. So, you know, if, if, if 
if you were happy with the idea of there, you know, there, there being an initial condition and that determining the course of history in the standard deterministic picture, uh, I think it's it's also reasonable to think that in the globally deterministic picture, you know, just some some equivalent of a of or generalized version of initial condition is chosen, and that's what determines the course of history. But then again, perhaps one might have might might say that even in the standard deterministic picture, that was always a problem, and you know, we should assume that all the possible initial conditions are realized in different universes. Or could that be something like um, uh, new criteria, new evolution criteria that uh, sort of appear just in time on demand because there is one uh, new configuration to solve? Like uh, until now, I've been using uh, these rules, but now I cannot solve this within those rules and I need to add another one. And that also sounds like a girdle in a way, doesn't it? Yes, possibly. Yeah, possibly possibly there would ultimately be another constraint added to select just one. Yes. It's really fascinating to reflect about these things. Now, one of the first uh, things that came to my mind reading uh, your papers was uh, the film Arrival, and especially the novella by Ted Chang, upon which it is based. There are uh, interesting uh, parallels with your ideas, to say the least. Yeah, um, I mean, Ted Ted Chang is a a great writer and very, very informed by, by science and by uh, interesting ideas in physics that uh, uh, definitely uh, both without giving any spoilers the arrival and, and the, the novella story of your life play with these ideas about you know time and the idea of, of a sort of block universe and time being all present at once rather than flowing from one side to another um, so it is a it's a good 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 I think example of what kinds of interesting things could follow from from that way of thinking? Um, yeah, I, know, I met Ted Chiang over the summer and discussed some of these oh, things. Wow. he's one of my favorite writers. <laughs> he was, yeah, he definitely agreed that, that there's some, some similar ideas here. Uh, uh, since you met him, you have any idea when we can expect his first full-length novel? No, no, he didn't. I didn't discuss that, but I, I, I would be excited. He only wrote shorter stories. I mean, if he had a full novel, uh, uh, you know, I read very fast. So short stories too short for me. I like to read big books. I'd, yeah, I'd and, love to read a novel from him. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, uh, if you think of what happens in the story and also in the movie, see that uh, he goes much beyond the scientific things that we are discussing because he says something like if you train yourself to think in this way like uh, for example i have been training myself to play sudoku to understand your ideas if you train yourself to think of the world in terms of uh, global determinism at some point uh, things switch in your mind and uh, the uh, I, I, I can't give spoilers because I believe everyone has seen the film. You become able to remember the future. Mm-hmm. Um, now I do not 
thing that can happen that simply, I mean, I can play Sudoku for years, but I'm not going to be able to remember the future. But do you think that uh, some kind of uh, future evolution of human beings, either uh, natural or uh, induced by technology, could enable us to see much more of uh, reality that we are seeing right now and uh, perhaps uh, mm, remember something that will happen. Yes. I would need better ways of saying it, but uh, you understand what I mean. I think our ability to remember only the past is very closely linked to our ability to take action into the future. Um, That's because, you know, if you could remember both, if you can remember the future, um, then, then, and you can also take action to change the future, then you can very, you end up with paradoxes where you, you remember something's happened in the future and then you take action to prevent it. And then that, that's a logical paradox. Um, So I think, in order to, for us to be the kinds of creatures which have the ability to, to take action and to, to, to cause things to happen in the future, we have to have limited ability to, to remember the future because otherwise it, that would just be logically impossible. Um, so I, if, if we were to evolve towards being able to remember more of the future, I think that would have to come with a, at the same time an evolution towards being less able to take action and to affect things in the future. So that would be that would be a, an interesting change in the types of agents that we are. We would have to be more sort of passive witnessing and less less active causing things to happen. Yeah, in fact, I think that there is a science fiction novel about that, huh? written by a fellow Australian. Oh, uh, mm, I'm sorry. Does uh, that way of putting thing? Uh, make a New Zealander upset and I say a fellow Australian I mean somebody who comes from that part of the world <laughs> and um, the writer is uh, Greg Egan and the novel is called Terra Ninja okay. there's okay. Some, li- some life forms able to sense uh, quantum possibilities and act upon them it's a very nice novel uh, in uh, did I lose your voice? No, I don't think so. Ah, I- great. Uh, in general, mm, you know, link aside what we could become, does it make sense to think that uh, some kind of uh, life form in the universe, perhaps extremely different from ourselves, could have... Uh, this uh, global perspective on reality that uh, doesn't break the symmetry between uh, uh, past and future. Yes, I. Uh, it sort of seems at least possible, technically possible, but again, I think it's a creature or a, a being which had the ability to sort of see both the past and future in that way would necessarily have to have very limited ability to intervene and to produce changes in, in things because otherwise mm-hmm. logical paradoxes. So that that being would have to be very different to us, not only in its ability to, to, to know things and to see the past and the future, but also in, in the way in which it interacts with the world and the way in which it is able to take action and influence things. 
fact, this, bring, this brings me to the last point that I had in mind, which is that, okay, now let's assume that some uh, uh, something, some uh, very weird aliens or uh, some concept of uh, God has this uh, global perspective. Now, it seems to me intuitively that uh, this uh, being would live uh, would lead a very boring life because yes. you know in his world nothing new ever happens by definition so i tend to think that uh, you know once you follow uh, your approach that you know there is this um, self-consistent uh, thing consisting of space and uh, time couldn't there be another timeline dimension beyond that and then another one and then another one and then another one so that at any point in the hierarchy the universe has uh, some uh, elbow room some uh, space for change mm, again i say that in a very imprecise way but i guess you understand what do you think yes um i mean i think that's certainly possible it's sort of it's by by definition we don't have access to the whatever there is outside our universe so we don't have you know not going to have any direct way to find out about the hierarchy of other space times in which ours is embedded in that sense um uh i guess i would emphasize that in order to make sense of this kind of globally deterministic picture, one doesn't need any time outside the universe. It's enough to just have to just have the, our universe with its time and space built in, and with with nothing, with no sort of sense of time outside of it. But it's it's possible that there could be such a thing. It's just not necessary. So you have uh, given me a lot to think about for days and for weeks, and. <laughs> Thank you very much for uh, finding uh, the time to join me. Yeah, thank you. This has been and uh, I'm going to stop recording now and uh, I hope to talk to you again soon.